Once upon a time, I met a man named Wayne Henderson, who is perhaps the world's finest luthier of handmade guitars. Having crafted instruments for Eric Clapton and Doc Watson, among countless others, he has climbed the highest mountaintop in pursuit of his art and craft. And so I asked him how he did what he did. And he looked at me and blinked and said, you take a block of wood and cut away everything that doesn't look like a guitar. I believe that art knows what it wants to be if you're patient and persistent enough to listen to it. When I first read about the arrest of Ross Ulbricht at the Glen Park branch of the Public Library in San Francisco, I knew there was a movie there. I didn't know whether it was a doc or a feature film. And when I couldn't get access to Ross himself, because at the time he was locked up in MCC New York, I decided to write a movie that became the feature film, Silk Road. Similarly, with Night Stalker, I knew I had the sheriff's deputies who had worked the case of Richard Ramirez, who had left a trail of bodies in his wake one hot, bloody summer in 1985 Los Angeles. And that one wanted to become the documentary. Ramin Barani is known to the world for his feature films, like his 2005 masterpiece, Man Push Cart, and his Oscar-nominated picture, The White Tiger. Not too long ago, he was approached by producers who asked him to make a feature film about a man named Richard Davis, who had shot himself 196 times, nominally in the name of safety, but also to create an empire in the bulletproof vest game. I won't tell you more about the plot, because you need to watch it yourself. The quietly devastating end that it builds to is not to be missed. But I will say that Ramin refused the call to make it a feature film, and instead chose to make it a doc called Second Chance. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Ramin Barani. Thank you uh, for taking the time to join us on the show today. Um, what a uh, what a fantastic film. Um, we're so happy to have you here. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Tell me, um, tell me the origin story of this movie. How do you kind of come, you know, after a long and illustrious career in features, and, you know, this is a very idiosyncratic, singular, and fascinating film. And I'm kind of curious what led you, you know, your personal journey to this film, why you chose this, and um, tell us the, the backstory of how you came to it. Yeah, I, um, I've only made two short docs prior to this. Um, everything else, my other seven films are fiction feature films. And I was editing my last film, The White Tiger, in 2020, and I had a Zoom meeting, one of my first Zoom meetings with the producers of Vespucci Group, who proposed the story of Second Chance to me as a fiction film. They were going to make the documentary, and they wanted to know if I would make a fiction film. And they started to describe to me what the film was about and who Richard was. And then they shared some archives with me via Zoom. And that really got my attention. And I asked them if they could send me more material that I could review. And when I reviewed all that, I, I was immediately drawn to the material and the themes, but it was the wealth of archives that made me think this is really not a fiction film for me, although it could be a fiction film. Um, I, I wanted to make the doc. The, the archives were, was what really pushed me over, and then I asked them, and thank God they said yes. Take, I think they got rid of the other director and 
they allowed me to step in. Yeah, the archival is really an astonishing piece of this, you know, from that 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 kind of, you know, that from the very opening moment and you and you play it sort of, you know, strongly and proudly and up front. And it and it's an eclectic and diverse range of archival materials from, you know, the films that he had made to the sort of all the promo work. When you begin the kind of construction of this from the archive, how thoroughly did you go through everything before you had, you know, begin shooting? Like, what was your process kind of coming into it? Yeah, I mean, the opening image is, you know, it really is shocking. It's a man pointing a gun at his chest and firing. And he's, Richard has done this 192 times. He says the first time with science, and the rest was show business or marketing or propaganda, we will learn in his filmmaking. Um, we were lucky to have a great editor, Aaron Wickenden, who has cut a lot of amazing docs. Um, he's cut a lot for Morgan Nelville and Steve James and others. Um, and he, we brought him on before we started shooting. And Aaron and I were going through the wealth of archives and movies. So Richard's made a lot of films uh, short little films, some are recreations of police shootings, um, some are marketing, and some are, some are quite, kind of funny, campy and, and strange. And so Aaron and I, I think, are probably the only people that have watched all eight hours. And then, of course, all the archives, and then there was a lot of home movies. I've seen most of the home movies. I think Aaron has seen all of them. So most of that we had actually watched before going to Michigan in, in November 2020 to start filming. And then we finished filming in April, May 2021. So what was your process from, you know, beginning with that archive, sitting down, watching it with your editor, assessing it, categorizing it, <clears throat> I imagine choosing relevance. How does that inform your process when you go to start putting together shoot plan, your interview prep? Like, talk me through kind of how you go from archive to, okay, how are we going to construct this film? Yeah, uh, um, I was lucky to work with Adam Stone. Um, he's been a friend for about 20 years, a cinematographer. He shot a short doc for me, and he's just a phenomenal uh, a DP, but he's also shot great docs like Wild Wild Country and, um, and several others. So fa fortunately, he was available. He's usually booked up, and he was available, and we shared the archives with him as well, and then he and I started talking about a look for the film, and that resulted in him bringing in these kind of very old warped dirty lenses that added a real kind of 70s feel to everything which is more along the time that richard was initially making his films was in the 70s and then um with the help from the producers adam and i started location scouting you know when you're shooting a doc some people have an amazing home like um richard davis's cabin with this iwo jima painting over his head was just kind of perfect so we started location scouting for spaces that we thought would match the characters and also create a cinematic world for the film. Again, so that you would really start to feel like you were watching a unified cinematic experience, not just a hodgepodge of people talking in places that make no sense. And that, that really helped form a look that was then further enhanced by the, cinema, by the um, composer, Todd Griffin, who's another phenomenal He's a phenomenal musician, but also has done a lot of great docs and, um, and some titles that 
kind of had again a seventy steel to them. Yeah, I know Adam is is a is a close friend and, and close collaborator of mine too. He shot the last narc for me and is shot the the new series that's coming out on, on Netflix. So I, I know and adore Adam and I know his process really well. It's so interesting to hear you talking about it because I think one of the things that's so unique about him as a you know cinematographer The The Last Narc you did that? I did, yeah. Oh, that's I like that film a lot. Yeah, we looked. In fact, we talked about the, that film in terms of its use of locations and where you put people for the for their interviews. Well, it was so funny that you you know that you say that because I was you know when Adam and I were prepping that film, it was a similar thing, and I think it's a challenge that we deal with in docs a lot, which is okay you know, in certain places, the location is speaking to you and saying, okay, this is representative of the person and sort of the appropriate framing and giving you the vibe and visual information. And that kind of Adam has a brilliant eye, A, for kind of, I think, the graphic choices and B, for the things that supplement character. And, and it, it gives these films a coherent and unified vision that docs don't often have. And, and I noticed the lens choices, you know, it was a, this sort of the, the, the very spectacular, subtle, but uh, smart uh, lensing that that really does you know acknowledge the archival that's there kind of call and even like you even pl- played it down to the font you know one of the first things I noticed as the film started was like choice of font and I was like okay brilliant I was curious you know how early on you locked into it because it is a very it's a very coherent visual uh, language that you establish in the film yeah yeah thanks for saying that and I, I, I'm sorry I didn't know that you had made that film I, I admire it very much and and we have a mutual love now of Adam Stone. And yeah, the, the titles came pretty late and, and the designer did a great job. He showed me a handful of ideas and I gravitated to that one pretty quickly. And then we zeroed in on that kind of burnt umber orange kind of look. Again, that felt representative of the visuals in the movie and also of the era that not all of the story, the story takes place over uh, decades, but a lot of the archives are pretty heavily focused on the 70s and 80s, you know, although the story gets all the way to the present time. And, you know, 2001 was a big moment in terms of the company second chance and and the kind of Zylon fiasco. So 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 talk a little bit about kind of going, you know, drilling further into that from production plan, you know, from assessing the archival, putting together the the visual aesthetic with Adam, the production plan, because it's an interesting combination of, you know, seated controlled interviews and um, verite scenes, particularly, you know, I think one of the many beautiful things about this film is kind of the unexpected places that it goes, you know, like tonally, you could have there's there's a sort of like wackiness to the archival material and yet it goes to like very serious um deep i think questions and themes and then there's this beautiful symmetry to it from you know that opening shot to the closing shot you know which almost reminded me of Herzog's Strozek at the end but like the way you sort of began with that image and then took us on this voyage and and, and finished in the end um but the con- the the constituent elements that you're building with like how did you know okay we're going to shoot x number of interview days y number of verite scenes you know like what was that process and putting it together and how much did it evolve on the fly? Um, it's probably a combination of both. I mean, the, the first round of shooting, um, I would say that in the first round of shooting, the 
I had to come to an, a realization that Richard was not going to reflect on things he had done. And he wasn't even going to accept that he had done them. It was really like a, a, a granite slab of cognitive dissonance that was just sitting there and wouldn't, wouldn't budge. And I don't think it's that if we had interviewed him in some other way, he would have started to weep about some mistake he had made in the past. I just don't think he's wired that way. Mm -hmm. I think it's something that is probably why he was also ingenious enough to create this thing in his basement. And so we, we, we kind of did a lot of sit-down interviews that first go-around that resulted in a few gems and some things that just kind of were not that interesting. And then, especially with Richard, I needed to talk to him again when we went back in April. And that's where I really felt I wanted to take him out of his element and move him into the pizza shop and to kind of return him to the alleyway of his origins where he claimed to have had a bloody kind of shootout where he turned himself into a vigilante hero, probably most of it myth mythology. And so that's kind of where most of that, that stuff came was in the second round of shooting. And that's also where Clifford and Aaron meet at their bloody encounter 40 years ago. So um, I think a lot of that, the verite stuff came more in the second second round of shooting. You know, you bring up a, a number of, I think, fascinating subjects in, in what you just said. One is the challenges that we face, you know, making nonfiction films in terms of veracity, uh, authenticity, and kind of plumbing. I think that's one of the things that makes Richard such a fascinating character, right? That that kind of wall preventing uh the self-reflection or questioning and how and you and we as the audience can feel you navigating it you're initially letting him sort of tell his version of it and then you begin to sort of poke holes and, pre and present that how do you navigate that in terms of as a filmmaker working with your subject where you know okay I'm going to call bullshit here but I need to do it in an you know in a way like talk about that and, and sort of the the um, I guess the directing in a fundamental fashion and the way in the same way that you would sort of shape performance from your actors it's a very calculating um, or n important set of calculations to reach that place with 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 Richard and with the subject talk about that yeah it was challenging I mean because you're well it was challenging because I have to say I kind of like Richard um, uh, uh, Adam and I and the rest of the crew were were fed homemade chili and mac and cheese and donuts and cookies every time we showed up at his cabin. And I felt he was genuine about it. I don't think he was trying to sway us. I never talked to any of the subjects except for Matt Richard's son before I went to shoot. I wanted to just meet them for the first time with the mm -hmm. camera and just start the conversation, the first initial impression. And, um, you know, Matt was, was and is, is a very smart businessman. He's um, just a smart guy. And... He wanted to know what were my intentions were, and I told him, I'm not coming to make a vanity film, because I think initially they may have thought that. He said, that is not why I'm coming. But I'm also not coming to make a takedown movie. I'm not coming to humiliate your dad. I'm not coming with tricks up my sleeve. But I am going to ask questions about the Zylon case, about arson, about, you know, about the things that are public record. So I'm going to ask those questions. And that's what I did. And... Um, when Richard simply refused to accept or acknowledge some of these uh, misproprieties from the past, 
I didn't really want to get into an argument with him. I wanted to find the most respectful way I could to just ask the questions again and to give him further opportunities, even on different days, including the second round of shooting, some of the same questions again four months later, to have had it, give him that time to think, you know, four months ago I didn't tell him what really happened, maybe now I should. But no, he doesn't. He continues to disagree and to present his version of, the, of what he believes happened. And I, I thought I thought that was the best way to do it. Um, Richard talked himself into a lot of holes. Some of the things he said I found so abhorrent that I actually cut them out of the film mm-hmm. because of what I told Matt that I did not want to make that kind of movie. It's really not what I want to do. Um, I found it would be somehow disrespectful to him. And you, you know, like a fiction film, you have to have empathy for all your characters. You know, they're strengths and their weaknesses, their flaws, everything. And I, and I wanted to have that feeling. And I kind of still have that feeling about Richard. I, I find most of his philosophies abhorrent, but it doesn't mean that I, I don't still see him as a, a real person. Um, and you have to shape performance. I mean, R- Richard, if you ask Richard what he had for dinner last night, 30 minutes later, he's still talking and hasn't mm-hmm. quite answered mm-hmm. the question. And so there were times where he would say, it would take him 10 minutes to say something that would take you right. 30 seconds. And right. at a certain point, I had to just tell him, you got to stop. Tell me that in a shorter amount of time and then do it again and again and again. And so at a certain point, because I didn't want to cut, I didn't want to keep cutting to 13 other shots and images to cobble together a sentence out of him. So you kind of had to just get in there and drill down and make him say what he wants to say, but in less time. Well, it's interesting because you're talking about several layers of, um, you know, fashioning a performance in a way. There's, you know, on the day in the room as you're asking the questions and and saying, wait, wait, I need to stop you here. I need you to boil that down and be more focused. And then there's also the layer once you're in the edit, the selection of material. And I think, you know, it's a big it's a fundam- it's a foundational element of documentaries that you are constructing the presentation of character and it, it has to be very um, surgically and deliberately done because this is a fascinating complex character with all of these different sides you know with abhorrent ideas but with massive charisma and with truth and lies and self mythologizing and how long did you stay in the edit, you know, as you're sort of fashioning it? And who do you, how do you find the, your, I guess, sort of center line in terms of what to leave in, what to leave out in making it an empathetic portrayal, yet at the same time asking those hard questions? Talk about the edit. Yeah. Um, grateful to have Aaron Wickenden, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he's just a phenomenal editor. He was in Chicago. I was in New York and we would speak every morning. He would call me usually 7, 7.30 a.m. his time when he was having his morning coffee. And he would always be like, oh, Ramin, Ramin, I, I got five ideas this morning. And I was like, my God, he hasn't even sat down at the computer. He's already got five ideas. So he, he was phenomenal. And uh, I don't know if you've worked with Aaron yet, but um, he's always, it's very hard to get him. He's always booked. The, the, all, the, all the great ones in docs are. 
it's it's because it's because the the it's such a important role that that collaborator you know it's your kind of co-author in a way of really shaping the film so so keep keep talking about that in terms of did the distance would did the the sub, the geographic separation between you guys was it beneficial did you want to be in the bay more did you feel like okay this works because you're able to have some distance or what was that process well he came to new york for about a week or two two weeks and we worked in person together I found it helpful it's the first you know I've made seven fiction films I edited four of them alone and then I co-edited three of them with three amazing editors so I'm typically sitting at a computer alone editing and an editor is in another room editing this is the first time I didn't do that but Aaron was so skilled at what he does meaning and he's unbelievably fast people that are fast are often not precise he was fast and precise like every edit was to the frame the sound was already designed he had already thought of a temp score and he was very quick at adjusting to what i wanted like i want less cuts i want less i want less illustrative archival than maybe another director he worked with um and i asked him to after i saw the first few scenes or sequences i asked him to go back and look at a short doc i made called bloodkin and that helped him zone in very quickly to what I like a little bit more. And then, of course, Aaron brought his own strategies and techniques, which I liked, and incorporated that into my style. And so I always knew the movie was going to be broken into chapters. I don't know why I thought that would work for the film, but it always seemed to work. And I always, even from prep, I thought there would be a voiceover because the story spans several decades and it involves a company and, and some kind of logistic things that I didn't really want to bore the audience with. By the time you explained it to me as a subject in the movie, four minutes are going to go by and I could say it in 20 seconds. So that I always knew would be in the film. And I think Aaron and the producers and I always thought it would be structured as a rise and fall Mm -hmm. story. And that's kind of what we were struggling to do for the first few months. And then we sent it out for feedback, and that's when Joshua Oppenheimer got involved. And Joshua was a friend, and obviously is a you know someone I admire as a filmmaker and as a person. And we had with Aaron a three to four hour Zoom conversation with Joshua, who's who lives in Denmark, and um, it was really helpful to hear how much of the film he was responding very positively to, because you're like you're, you're kind of relieved because you're just showing it for the first time to somebody. And then he was like, it seemed, he said on his own, it seems like you were trying to make a rise and fall story and I don't know why. And it doesn't even seem to be what you're interested in. And hearing that opened up a lot of doors of a different way of structuring and a different way of revealing information and just saying certain things up front to get them settled so that we could focus on character and theme and kind of these crazy... um, episodes in Richard's life and finding other ways of, of, of pulling the audience forward rather than rise and fall. Um, fantastic. Really interesting. And, and you touched on several things I want to go a bit deeper on, which is, um, so are you showing Oppenheimer a completed film at that point or an early rough cut? Um, and as you begin to to kind of explore it and as he prods you with these questions, how much does the um, 
I guess, the structural shape of it change from that feedback and input you get from him and how much remains? How much did the film transform from the initial cut you showed to him uh, to, to the final film that we have today? Yeah, I mean, we showed him a full film. Um, and it, it wasn't just Joshua. There were a lot of other great writers and artists and filmmakers that saw cuts of the film. They're all thanked in the film. And, and every single one of them was very helpful. I just think Joshua was the kind of the one that spent the most time on it and whose comments helped us the most probably. Um, I think it, it, it pushed me and Aaron to start talking about what each chapter was really going to be about and including in the naming of the chapters, I found myself retitling probably mm -hmm. five of the, I think it's seven chapters. I, I probably retitled five of them because I was forced through that interrogation um, to think, well, what am I really trying to get at in this chapter? And what would be the way to sum it up in a few words so that we would be able to focus? So this, the, the, probably the core material that's in the film it's probably still 70% has always been in the film. And then there's things that came and went, as you can imagine yourself as a, an editor and a filmmaker and a director. Um, it was more how it was being presented that really changed. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, suddenly I, I shifted and, and I started to um, explain in a voiceover very quickly up front, Richard is this person and did these things. And these, these, these bad things happened. So that I could relieve myself of that burden of how, when, and how will I reveal the fall? You know, instead, I wanted to push you towards thematic concepts. Well, so that's the, the next thing that I wanted to explore with you is I think one of it's a it's a very interesting choice beginning with that with the voiceover, and I think a very effective one. And it like what it brought to mind for me is you know we've in the last few years or however long it's been we've seen the kind of explosion of the podcast as a medium, right? Where it's someone taking you on kind of a curated voyage through a story so that you have a point of entry with it. And I liked very much your point of entry and the sort of acknowledgement of it, because that's a fundamental thing with docs too. It's right. Like how much do you acknowledge the, the sort of presence of the filmmaker? And you are, you were able to very clearly sort of dispense with the stakes questions or, or whatever it is that, that sort of audiences need to kind of, you know, hang on to, 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 to take the ride. And I think one of the one of the very powerful things that you get out of doing that, uh, tell me if you agree or disagree, is it kind of, where this film goes and that the, the sort of reunion scene or forgiveness scene with, with Clifford at the end is such a, like, it's such a powerful uh, emotional experience just seeing those two men come together and the way they clasp each other. And it's almost wordless. And it, this... This film rewards your um, patience and persistence with it in a profound emotional way. And I think that the use of that, you know, the, the sparing and careful use of the writing, you know, in some way buys you that as an audience member. So, so, so talk about that. Like, we're, you know, in terms of sitting down to write and, and putting yourself um, and your voice in the film – were you, what were the, the references? Were you looking at podcasts? Were you looking at, I don't know, Michael Moore or Herzog or like, what were the, what are the influences that go into that? And, and how are you adjusting the writing as you go? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, um, at some point we had talked about should there be a narrator. I mean, I always knew there would be a narrator, but we were, I was wondering should it be somebody else. And I thought I might even ask my friend Mike Shannon to do it. We've worked together a few times. He lives down the street. But once it became apparent that my voice was in the film as the person sitting on the other side of the camera, then it started to feel strange to me that somebody else's voice would then narrate the movie. Like, who would that person even be? So then that kind of resolved that question. Um, and then in terms of the, the narration, yeah, I would say that it kind of like, in, in for me, it was kind of like a, a, the process of um, editing a fiction film where the more honed the movie becomes, the less you need temp music. You realize mm -hmm. you don't need the music there anymore. The more you start to notice lines of dialogues the characters are saying that are not needed because it seems so obvious suddenly. So I would say there was much more voiceover initially. And then with each round that we would send out for feedback, you know, smart people like my filmmaker friend Michael Almoretta would say, do you really need these lines? Or I sent it to two novelist friends in California, Rachel Kushner and Otessa Mosfer, and both of them had, of course, they're writers, so they had of course, questions yeah. about specific lines, and, and that was so helpful. And, um, you know, making sure that, you know, one of the things Michael Almoretta and I spoke about was, he was all, by the way, he's also made fiction, great fiction and great docs, um, was making sure that none of the voiceover sounded in any way judgmental or mm -hmm. made an audience feel there was something they should be judging, but rather that it would avoid doing that. So that, again, all helped. Um, and then probably I was looking at, in terms of thinking, how do you, how much voiceover do you really need? And how do you, how and, and where can an, a narration jump you forward through some plot stuff that you don't want to deal with? And Herzog's just really good at it, you know? In, in Grizzly Man, um, he, he do, he's very good at it also in Into the Abyss with text. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's brilliant. He doesn't have a narration in it, but he puts text. Yeah, he puts text instead. So he, I found him to be the most helpful. And of course, he saw the film and, and was very positive and had a few thoughts also. And, and that was also, as you can imagine, helpful. It's a, you know, it's a it's a powerful circle of folks that you're invoking, you know, in different disciplines uh, and with different sets of expertise. Do you use the same process in your fiction films, in your narrative films, in terms of taking the smart people that you know and trust whose work and opinions and ideas, and do you sort of bring them in in process? How, do, how much does this differ, for, differ from your process, or is it very similar to, to making fiction films? similar you you know you're you know so i know some directors don't like as much outside feedback i cherish it and i'm grateful for it because you're asking very busy people for time you know it's not just watching something for 90 minutes or two hours it's they have to think about it they have to be taking notes which might mean starting and stopping then they have to digest it then they have to spend time with you on the phone or a cup of coffee or whatever you're wherever you're meeting them so i'm just grateful that these intelligent, talented people are willing to do it. And then you return the favor. When they call you, you're like, of course, yes, I will yep. watch it, I will read it. You know. Talk about the scene, uh, the reunion scene, because it's, uh, you know, I, my, 
and I, f- I find myself doing this, you know, a lot, you know, as I'm watching films or nonfiction films in particular, um, because I've made more of them. But I was imagining, you know, for most of it, I'm so engrossed in the story, I'm not thinking about the f- filmmaking. But every now and then you, you sort of notice, oh, okay, how did he do this? How did he approach this? And that, that um, the reunion scene, let's call it, um, unless you've got a better piece of nomenclature for it, but like... That's the kind of thing that going into that, you don't know how well that's going to really work. Like, is this going to be a genuine, is there going to, is this going to work? You know, you put these people together, is there nothing to say? And it, and, it, and yet it, this was one of the most effective executions of it I've ever seen in anything. And talk about both the the construction of it on the day, you know, how to keep people separate, how to make sure you've got the coverage. And then, you know, I guess your emotional experience of... Uh, knowing, okay, like my, my movie's got an end. Talk talk about that a little bit. Yeah, in the first round of shooting, um, we spoke with Aaron Westrick, the police officer who was shot and saved by Richard Davis's vest and then later joined Richard's company. They became close friends and then Aaron became a whistleblower. When I was talking to Aaron, he started to tell me about Clifford Washington, the man who had shot him. And the more he told me about him, as I'm sitting there listening, I'm thinking to myself, my God, why had I not thought to interview any of the people who shot cops? And this is the guy that I need to be talking to because he shot one of the principal characters of the movie. And the little he told me was that he'd become a professor, that he'd become a pastor. I mean, these things were already kind of amazing. So then I turned to the producers and I'm like, this guy has to be in the film because I didn't tell them this, but I was thinking to myself, I don't know if this movie is going to be good, but if that guy is as interesting as Aaron is describing him, the movie actually could be good. And not only was Clifford all the things that Aaron said, he was even more. He was funny. He didn't tell me that I was funny, but he was funny and charming. He has this great humor that, that changes how we connect with him very, very quickly. And, um, so he agreed to be in the film. We shot him in April of 2021. And um, it was only while interviewing them that it occurred to me, my God, they should meet. I hadn't thought of it before I got there. And so then I asked him, would you be willing to meet Aaron? And he wasn't sure. He was very, you can see in the interview, he's very yep. emotional. The, the shooting of another human being 40 years ago was at the tip of his throat, you know? Yep. And um, he came back about half an hour later and said, I, I do want to do it. I, I have to do it. And so then I asked Aaron. Aaron said yes. And then I'm like, oh, where would they meet? Thinking again, as a filmmaker, what would mm-hmm. the location be? And I thought, my God, it should be where they shot one another. It's just an empty yard, you know, someone's backyard. And um, so then it was um, just driving there with Aaron. And um, Aaron got there first, and then we were just kind of waiting for Clifford to arrive. Um, We thought it would be awkward for Clifford to drive. You're talking technically, you asked very specifically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And as a filmmaker, you understand this. So we thought it would be somehow awkward for him to drive. He wasn't driving himself. The production team was driving him. So then he's being driven and parking mm-hmm, and getting mm-hmm. out. That didn't seem good. So he parked across the street 
And then they said, we were across the street, he's going to come. So then we understood we need to be prepared with the camera. And then um, he walked across the street and walked into the yard. And we did not know what was going to happen. We didn't know they were going to have this kind of hug and that Clifford was going to break into tears. We had no idea what would happen. And, um, you know, then you're just doing what you can imagine with Adam. You're just like, okay, we got to get a little bit of everything so I can cut this thing together. And, um, and it wasn't long. Clifford did not want to stay there. I think he was so overwhelmed. To me, it looked like a man that wanted to collapse. I think mm -hmm. he went home and slept probably for three days. There was so much built up emotion in him over the course of decades that he released what he needed to release and he wanted to go. And it ended up being this kind of very powerful moment. It's a, it's a, it's an incredible scene, and he is a uh, you know a beautiful and astonishing character. And I think the complexity that you see in him from moment one, because he's very, and I think it's a, a sort of you know a, a note to all of us in like the powers of transformation. Like we're not who we were when we were eighteen, twenty years old, whatever. You know, he is a fundamentally uh, categorically different human being, and yet who he was is still, you know, right there in his throat, as you can see. And and the complexity of that character and the profundity of that moment, the authenticity of it was just, it was really powerful and beautiful. And in a way, you know, as a viewer, by the time I get to that, it was such an unexpected end to the voyage. I, I never, I, I didn't see it coming. I didn't expect it. And I was so moved by being taken there and, and then kind of look back and it's sort of like, well, of, of course this, you know, this is the only place this road could have led, but it was a, it was a beautiful, beautiful story and, and elegantly executed piece of filmmaking. So it was, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, Thank you very much. Thanks for saying that. Talk about the, you know, the final image in the film um, and uh, the idea, you know, it, it's a sort of perfect bookend and, and kind of inverse in a way. When do you come to that? When do you know it's the last shot of the movie? Like, talk me through your, your process in getting to that. Pretty early, yeah. I, pretty early when I saw that footage, I was like, oh, that's the end of the film. What else could there be but that? And, um, you know, it, it, Richard cannot shoot himself anymore because of his heart, his heart. He's just old, too old to do it. Even, of course, even with the best, he can't do it. And I wanted to see how he did it. I wanted to demonstrate at his age, how does he hold the gun and do it and shoot it himself. And so, of course, he had a, a gun that wasn't loaded and he started to shoot. And I don't typically, even in my fiction films, I don't like to say cut. I like to just let things go on and on and on until they run their course. And so he just kept shooting because no one told him to stop. And then I, I was like, this is getting kind of weird. And so I told Adam, Adam, I whispered to Adam, start moving around. And I moved Adam a little bit till he realized what I wanted. And he started doing it on his own and just started drifting around Richard, who just kept shooting, kind of just humming to himself and shooting and shooting and shooting at himself. And it seemed to be what the movie was about, a metaphor for the country that continues to shoot at itself. And then the next layer that came was when an audience saw it. Because for me and Adam and the producers and the editor, we all knew the gun wasn't loaded. But it didn't occur to me that the audience thinks it's loaded. Right, right. And that added a completely different 
Russian roulette tension to the scene that I had never thought, never just never thought about, even though it's so obvious now. Um, my last question for you is, um, is tone, because to me, in a way, I think kind of the defining job of a filmmaker and a director in some ways is being a purveyor of tone and, and making sure that that tone is, I guess, consistent and appropriate, you know, appropriate to the individual scenes and sort of consistent or, or at least coherent over time. And it's a, you, you, you paint in a lot of different colors. Um, but what I'm, what's, what's coming to mind at the moment is that archival scene in the middle where you see his father shooting him on the back of the boat, which is just such an astonishing piece of footage. And, um, and it, 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 it kind of speaks to that final image in the film, too, where it, like, it just keeps going and go, when it seems like this can't go on any longer. And, and the sort of, uh, I guess, insistence and insanity of that, and, you know, in some way, in, in both of those cases. Um, how did you achieve the balance of tone for this film? Um, and, and how closely do you watch that as a filmmaker? I mean, it's an excellent question. Um, yeah, I mean, the, with the footage of Richard's father, who was on Iwo Jima during those kind of famous and infamous or infamous battles. Yeah, he just can't stop shooting. He's so clearly traumatized. He just keeps firing his rifle at his son, which then happens decades later when Richard's pointing a gun at his own son to shoot, and he can't do it. He cannot do what his father did. and The son has to shoot himself. This is the Davis's strange family tradition. I guess all families have traditions. This is theirs, to shoot at each other. Um, I mean, I'm saying it now laughing a little bit, but of course it is disturbing. And um, I, I, I think it's really hard. I've been thinking more and more about tone in the last years. I think making The White Tiger really made me start thinking about tone. It was the first film I made that was going to be slightly heightened and have a different style of humor and, and of camera than I had been used to, which got me really thinking a lot about tone and here there's a lot of humor in the film, right? There's a lot of heavy subjects, but there's also a lot of humor. And we were trying to find a way to balance that without ever poking fun at anyone, neither with the camera work, nor with the editing, nor with the voiceover. We didn't want to make fun of anybody. Um, if something was funny or someone was doing something absurd, we wanted it to play as neutrally as possible and trust that the audience would get it without us enhancing it. But I'm curious, how do you handle tone? What, what do you think about when you're working on fiction or nonfiction? How do you deal with tone? Well, it, I think there's, there's a couple of points for me. I think, you know, early on, it's a question of like finding the center uh, in some way or another. Like, okay, what do, I, what do I want this experience to be? I remember when I was making Operation Odessa, you know, this sort of crazy crime caper. And at some point it occurred to me, oh, it's an Elmore Leonard novel. Like, that's the tone. And once I sort of had that as a departure point, I knew kind of what I was, you know, aiming at. And then um, as, as it continues, I think it like you, you have to play in these different colors. And then by the time you get back to the end, you know, I was hearkening back to what you were saying a minute ago, which is by the time you're in that sort of final finishing stages of a project, 
it's this process of removal. Like if I don't need two shots, give me one. If I don't need music, like take it out. If I like everything that can be simplified and brought back to that essence in some way or another is kind of what brings you what brings it back to that original intention. But it's it's so hard. It's it's you know, I think it's uh, you know, among the many you know, impossibly challenging, you know, roles that you play throughout the course of it. I think that's a, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a fundamental one. Um, well, I want to, I want to thank you for, 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 ma- you know, for making this movie and, and really for a lifetime of, you know, beautiful and powerful work. It's, you know, I tune in every time, every time you've got one. So it's, uh, and it's so nice to see you, you know, working in the, in the long form, you know, nonfiction documentary space. I I hope that you continue to do more of it. And uh, I'm so, uh, you know, honored to have the chance to meet you and, and hope to include you and, you know, in my, in my circle of confidants and collaborators in the future. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I feel the same way. And uh, it was such an interesting interview because it's always different when you're talking with a filmmaker. So I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you to Ramin Barani for sharing his time and his stories about the making of Second Chance. And thank you to Richard Davis for pulling the trigger 196 times. And thank you to Aaron Westrick and Clifford Washington for the beautiful scene at the end of the movie. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk. This show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe.